You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Why don't you grab your Bibles and um, open to Romans chapter 3. And while you're flipping there, uh, anybody need a Bible? We've got some in the back. Anybody just raise your hand. Um, just was uh, just just had an awesome time just worshiping with you guys today. What a, what an awesome uh, uh, worship team we have up here, huh? So blessed. Uh, and what a song that was! Oh, glorious day. I mean, were you guys thinking about that as you were singing? Oh, glorious day when when he comes. I mean, what an awesome thing! I was just like, yeah. I was having these visions in my head, you know, like a, think about like a football team. I'm a sports guy, so think about a football team or basketball or whatever, you know, and everybody's dressed up and you're all a lunatic and everybody, you know, and no one cares who they're, we're all on the same team and, and you know, you're standing in the stadium and it's like 100,000 people and they got the drums going and music and out of the tunnel comes the guys that they want to worship, right? Comes the guys that they want to pray, here comes, and then the quarterback of the team would come out, you know, like a Peyton Manning and you can picture the crowd just going insane. It's like, here's going to be the guy that delivers us from these evil enemies, you know. It's just a pretend game of that, oh, glorious day when he comes back. I mean, that's going to be real. That is real, and it's coming, and he's coming. And Dustin and I were talking about it, and it's like, can you imagine, you know, and coming out of the sky, here comes God, here comes Jesus. You know, it's like <laughs> fists clenched together, huh? It's just exciting. Amen. And we're in the book of Romans, so what better book to be in today than, than the book of Romans? <clears throat> uh, why don't you guys stand? Let's, uh, let's just uh, give the word its due and stand in, in God's presence and, and read his word. Romans 3.21, and we're going to read to the end of chapter 4, all right? Romans 3, sorry. Did I say that? Romans 3, starting in verse 21 to the end of chapter 4. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from the works of the law? Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not indeed God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. Chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies, 
the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith has counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Verse 13. For the promise to Abraham... And his offspring, that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So, your, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You can be seated. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, as we have made it to Romans chapter 4, just going verse by verse through the book of Romans. Think of just what Warren Wearsby said, that there's just, uh, in his opinion, no greater chapter to impress into the heart of the believers, God. Just this evidence laid before us that a man and a woman, they're not justified, they're not right before you by the deeds of the flesh. And Lord, we know that in this church and in each individual, we just are so quick to default to self-righteousness and to works-based approval before you rather than just resting in uh, Jesus, what you've done and, and how you have been approved. Lord, we're just simple-minded. Lord, we're just, we need to be instructed by your spirit today. I just pray that a work of, of God would happen in this place where we're matured in the faith and you just move us another step out of a mentality of works-based approval 
Lord, we thank you that we're not saved by our works, but saved for good works. And so just mature us in that understanding and, and have a victory today in this place. Uh, Lord, for those that are just struggling with sin and bondage to sin, and for those that are just in all-out rebellion against you, Lord, we just pray that your spirit would soften hearts and that your kindness, your goodness, and your patience would lead to repentance today. We love you, and we love the book of Romans. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, Romans chapter 1, uh, Paul lays out the case for us that uh, all Gentiles are sinners, that uh, the pagans are sinners, and that the wrath of God uh, is poured out from heaven on all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. Uh, chapter 2 shows us that the Jews aren't let off scot-free either, but they actually are sinners in desperate need of a savior, even though they have the law and even though they're children of Abraham, uh, they need deliverance and redemption as well. And in chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, there's just incredible driving home of the point that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every man, woman, and child are under sin. They are slaves to sin, and they need to be redeemed. They need to be bought off the auction block of slavery uh, by the blood of Jesus. Last week, we studied these three important words, justification, redemption, and propitiation. Redemption and propitiation, kind of the, the cherry and the whipped cream on top of the Sunday of justification. You know, justification, to justify means to, you know, that to have the gavel slammed down by the righteous judge in heaven and to be instantaneously declared not guilty. Uh, it's an instantaneous act that'll happen the moment you put your faith in Christ and what he's accomplished for you through his life, his death, and his resurrection. At that moment, redemption takes place. The blood of Jesus buys us from the slave master, the cruel taskmaster of sin, and the propitiation through his blood by faith appeases the wrath of God that belongs to us. It's all placed on Jesus and all of his goodness and wealth and treasures, his inheritance, are given to us by his grace. Now, we come to chapter 4 where we see that God's approval, it doesn't come by our performance, but by belief in his promises. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 28, you know, Paul had this conclusion to the chapters dealing with the depravity of man. And he just concludes that a man isn't justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Down verse 31, it says, do we then make void or make worthless the law through this gospel of faith? An exclamatory statement of certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. You know, Paul has argued that no works in any way, shape, or form can justify an individual, can force the hand of the righteous judge to slam that gavel down. Now, the law isn't bad. It is we who are bad. And trusting in the law and, and, and in our ability to fulfill the law, it's actually an offense, a damnable offense to God. And if righteousness came through keeping the law, then only the Jews who had the law could be saved but the good news is, since it's by grace through faith, the whole world can be saved. 
Paul says here in verse 31 that the law has met its accomplishment in Jesus. He, uh, he fulfills the absolute demands of the law through his life. That's what he says in Matthew chapter 5. I haven't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. As Tim Chaddock says, Christ's work alone provides for the first time in history complete and utter fulfillment of the law. And faith in Christ is the remedy for this sin of de-godding God. Now, we've kind of been looking at this whole process, this whole unveiling as a legal court trial. Of course, God being the judge and we being the accused. We've got the district attorney of Paul the Apostle who's showing that everybody is guilty and is under condemnation. We see the conclusion of the matter is that the judge himself actually got up off of his judgment seat and came and became the sacrifice, became the atonement for the sins that had been committed by we the offenders. And in that moment, he has been judge, jury, and executed. But if we could kind of go back to the middle of of the trial where the witnesses are called, we have here in chapter 4 these witnesses being brought up to the stand. And the first one is Father Abraham. Okay, so in chapter 4, Abraham is brought up and placed on the witness bench. Now the Jews would always boast in Abraham being their father. They found righteousness in that. John the Baptist gives them a scathing rebuke saying, you know, don't say to me that because you're sons of Abraham that you're righteous because God is able to raise up sons of Abraham from these stones. But the Jews boasted in the guy. And so Paul says, hey, you want to talk about Abraham? Let's talk about Abraham. I'd like to call to the stand Abraham. This example of piety and faith and obedience, this model man to the Jews. One Jewish writing says that Abraham was perfect in all of his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Has anyone here ever read the story of Abraham? Genesis 12 through 20-something, 2021. You know, if you just read Genesis in those chapters, you'll see that is not the case. It's not the case. He wasn't perfect in all of his deeds. He wasn't well-pleasing. Um, uh, his deeds weren't well-pleasing, every single one of them. Cool news is, is that the New Testament does see Abraham as perfect because it looks at him through the cross, through the lens of the cross. That's a whole other beautiful Bible study for another day. But Paul does something scandalous here in, uh, in chapter 4, and we're going to see what it is. Uh, in just a few verses. As Abraham comes to the witness seat, Paul lays out three exhibits of evidence against Abraham being justified in the faith, okay? So three exhibits are going to be brought forth. Exhibit A, works. Exhibit B, Abraham's circumcision. Exhibit C, the law. Okay, now let's flip back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 1 through 6, and let's just kind of see the beginning of this, um, this uh, covenant that God has made with Abraham. Now, as you're flipping, just let me lay out real quick. In Genesis chapter 12, God appears to Abraham and tells Abraham to go, get out of your father's house, get out of the land of your fathers, and uh, get away from your kinsmen. Now, Abraham didn't do anything 
any of those things at first. He took his dad with him, he took his nephew Lot with him, and he uh, stayed on the uh, perimeter of his homeland. Uh, In that same chapter, we see Abram go to Egypt, and we see him basically, uh, you know, throw his wife under the bus. You know, she was a hottie, and uh, he he knew Pharaoh was going to want her. And so he said, let's just lie while we're here, just say you're my sister, and let's just try to get out of this thing alive. And, uh, and we know that that did not work well. It came and bit Abram on the booty. And, um, and he failed there. His deed wasn't righteous in that. Uh, his half lie was a full lie. Genesis 13, Abram does make it to Canaan. Uh, and that's when he parts ways with Lot. Lot heads towards Sodom. And then Lot is captured by four northern kings. In chapter 14, Lot is held uh, captive. He's rescued by Abraham as Abram takes 300 of his well-trained Delta Force servants, you know, and they go up and they just put the smack down on these four northern kings. Uh, They come back down. You have the story of Melchizedek there in chapter 14. And then as, as Abram gets back, he begins to worry about, man, I just went and I, you know, kind of stirred up a hornet's nest with these four kings. And I just know they're going to come back and they're going to attack me. And this is when the Lord appears to him in Genesis 15 verse 1. And it says in a vision that after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me? Seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one whom the Lord Uh, excuse me, one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, now look toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So that's just a little snippet of uh, this covenant beginning with Abraham. As you look in Romans chapter four, verse one, it says, what then shall we say of Abram, our father? Okay. Um, knowing that, what do we have to say about uh, Father Abraham, who had many sons? Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them, so, you know, so let's all stand up. Right arm, left arm, left foot in. Stand up, sit down. Okay, if you didn't grow up in Sunday school, you're totally lost right now. What shall we say about Father Abraham? How he was found according to the flesh. Now, if Abraham was justified, if that gavel slammed down in heaven for Abraham because of his works... He has something to boast about, but really not before God. You know, it just, it's, he's he's counteracting himself even in that statement because he knows Romans chapter three, verse nine and 12, you know, these bookends that there is none righteous. No, not one, not even father Abraham. Father Abraham needs a redeemer. He was a pagan. He was distant from God. He wasn't seeking after God because nobody does that, Paul says in chapter 3. And if he was justified by works, he'd have something to boast about. Back in chapter 3, Paul says, where is the boasting then? It's excluded, not by the principle of the law, but by the principle of faith. Because of this principle of faith, no longer can we boast before the Lord because we realize it's by grace and grace alone that we are saved. For someone to have boasting in their life, that is excessive pride and self-satisfaction about your achievements or your abilities. It's the same camp of, of pride living in every single human being. 
Romans chapter 1 tells us that this boasting heart is evidence of our depravity. Chapter 2, verse 17 and 23 says, You boast as a Jew, but then you dishonor God by breaking the law. You boast in vain. Everyone boasts in something. It's part of that idolatry. It's part of that de-godding of God that we've studied. And it's what's wrong with the world. James chapter 3 says that where there's uh, envy and self-seeking existing, every evil thing is there. Where it's about us, there's wickedness. And that's why Paul appeals to us in Philippians chapter 2 to let nothing be done out of selfish ambition or conceit. We have nothing to boast about. It's not about us. It's all about Jesus. It's by grace that we've been saved. Through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. Not of works. Lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2.8 tells us. If it were about our works. If it wasn't about grace. If it wasn't about faith. We would stand there all day before God. Just bragging. Just puffing ourselves up before a holy God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, we see that God uses the weak things of the world. Amen. He uses the foolish ones, and you're looking at him. You know, and, and I'm looking at him. Sorry, guys, but it's just the case, right? But amen, he uses us, right? Except for Halverson. We know that guy's got a brain. Okay. You know, he uses the foolish things of the world. He uses the weak things of the world. He uses the base things of the world to confound the wise, to put to shame the strong. Why? Well, it says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 29, so that no flesh would glory in his presence. Isaiah says, you know, I'm the Lord. I alone am he, and I'm not going to share my glory with another. There's not going to be anybody in my presence who puffs himself up. Lucifer had that happen. We remember what happened to him. He was cast out of the heaven with a third of the angels. No flesh will glory in his presence. If you boast in your hobbies, your talents, or your career choice, lay it down. If you boast in your social activism and all that you do for the world you boast in, repent and lay it down. If you as a Christian boast in your good behavior or brag about on the other end of things how bad you were before Christ, like you earned some sort of street credit with God by being badder than Michael Jackson, you know, then you need to lay that down. We can make an idol of, us, of ourselves being so good, and then on the opposite of things, we can make an idol out of ourselves being so bad that God owes me something. It's all about him. As Henderson says, constant reflection on meritorious accomplishment makes a person proud, not humble. And so if you or Abraham think you are justified by works, you have something to boast about before God, but you have no provision for sin and the wrath of God abides on you. Chapter three or chapter four, verse three says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. We just read that in Genesis 15, 6. But the verse starts with a great question. What does the scripture say? Man, we've got to let that be the, the phrase from our lips continually. Jews, you've developed a work system, a righteousness based on the flesh. What does the scripture say? Jews, you've got oral traditions and man's writings, but what does the scripture say? Go back to the beginning, Jew. Go back to Father Abraham. Go back to that guy that you just love so much. And you'll see the scripture say, Abraham 
believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. A great question here. When dealing with marriage and divorce, there's all sorts of arguments under the sun, even within the church. Oh, it'd just be better. There'd just be more peace if they just divorce. What does the scripture say? What does the scripture say? You know, oftentimes what the scripture has to say is not a popular view. In Genesis 15 and multiple times in Romans 4, and man, the whole theme of Romans, the whole theme of Galatians is that we're right with God through faith, by grace. This righteousness was accounted to Abraham because of his faith. That word counted means uh, to take inventory, to estimate, and to reckon. You can throw your country accent on there that I reckon Abraham is righteous because of his faith. That wasn't very country, I know. I can do better than that. I'm from Lakeview. I, I reckon. No, okay. We'll stop. You guys remember the story of Phineas back in the days of Balak and Balaam? When, you know, Balaam tried to put a stumbling block before Israel because of King Balak, but he just couldn't do it. The Lord would forbid him to, to put a stumbling block uh, to curse Israel. And so he said, you know what, here's what you can do. You can have all your, your women go down into the camp of the Israelites and seduce them to have sex and to worship their idols. And you know what? That'll totally stumble the children of Israel. And so all of these women went down into the camp of Israel and they began to fornicate with these beautiful women. And then they began to worship their gods. And it was so horrible that as, as some of the holy people were worshiping at the temple and discussing at the tabernacle of meeting what to do, uh, a man and a woman went into a tent right before the tabernacle of meeting and began fornicating. And Phineas, in his zeal, picked up a spear, went to the tent, and thrust the spear through both of them. Now in Psalm 106, verse 28, or verse 30, really, it says that Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stopped, and that was accounted to him for righteousness to all generations forevermore. Now it wasn't the act of throwing the spear that made him righteous, it was the faith that moved him to get up off his you know, seat and to grab the spear. And so that just ask that question, well, faith and works, and how can they be combined? You know, James chapter two, why don't you flip over there, verse 21, kind of lays out a paradox for us that almost seems like a contradiction. If you don't know the context of the whole of scripture, or even the whole context of James, James is going to say something in chapter two, verse 21, that seems like he's arguing with Paul. James 2.21 says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Oh, can't believe he'd undermine Paul by writing that in the book of James. But do you not see that faith was working? Faith was working together with his works. And by works, uh, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled. It says, Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Now, Paul in Romans is making the point that justification is recognized by God. It's by faith and it's positional. Okay, 
James' point is justification that is evidenced by man. It's very practical. That man can look and see, hey, it's just obvious this guy's justified. Paul emphasizes the roots of justification in Romans chapter 4. James emphasizes the fruits of justification. You'll note that James does not exclude faith, but he points out that faith must come first and that genuine faith produces outward fruit naturally flowing out of the life of the believer. Our faith is what makes us right with God, but our works, James tells us, bear witness to men that we are right with God. As John Calvin said, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. Another man put it that we are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. And so here in Romans chapter 4, Paul makes this clear point. Everybody got it. You can't miss it. That Abraham was reckoned as righteous before God because he believed in the promises of God that he would do what he said he would do. Galatians 3 says that the scriptures preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations will be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. God preached the gospel to Abraham by saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this for you. And in your seed, in Jesus, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Abraham believed it. He didn't even have a kid. He was 100 years old, but he believed it. Again, Tim Chaddock said, faith is never general or abstract. It's always a response to the concrete promises of God. You know, faith, uh, Abraham didn't have blind faith. You know, Abraham didn't have faith in faith. Abraham knew who God was. And that the promises of the Lord are yes and amen. And if the Lord says it, he's going to do it. And Abraham believed it. Verse 4 tells us, Romans 4, To him who works, the wage is not counted as grace, but as debt. If you were going to work your way to heaven, basically, God would owe you something. He would owe you heaven. He would owe you respect. He would owe you approval. It would not be grace. In a couple chapters in Romans, chapter 11, verse 6, it says, If it's by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it's of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, a work is no longer work. You know, God would have to owe you something. Some of the versions and what Kevin read would, see, would say it's due to you. God has a, a past due bill of approval and of righteousness that he needs to give you because of your works. But Romans 11 also says, who has first given to God that God should pay him back? For of him and through him and to him are all things. He doesn't need anything from us and he doesn't owe anything to us. For us to say, I have a lien against God is a silly notion. If Abraham was justified by works, then he could boast before God and God would owe him a debt. We studied last week that the wages of sin are death. But we're under this taskmaster of sin. 
and for us to say, God, I want my paycheck for living under this taskmaster of sin. He says, no, you don't. You really don't want that paycheck. I want my paycheck and I want my W-2s with it. Well, buddy, your paycheck is my wrath because you're under sin. You're under the bondage of sin. But how about some grace? How about a free gift? I'm offering it to you today. Verse 5 says, But to him who does not work, but has faith in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Him who does not work, but has faith in him. This is grace. This is not a debt that God owes. To him who has faith that God justifies the ungodly, that faith is accounted to you, is is reckoned to you for innocence or for righteousness. Now, something scandalous just happened here in verse 5. Paul told the Jews that Abraham was ungodly. That's what he said right there. Abraham believed that God was able to justify the ungodly, and he was saved. As Acts 13 verse 38 says, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things that you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Justification comes by grace through believing. Even the righteousness of God by faith to all and upon all who would believe. Romans 3.22, we've studied it. And so we've had this first witness with this first exhibit of works placed in the evidence spot. You know, there's Abraham. Now for a second, we're going to just say, Abraham, could you step down? And David, could you step up? David, just the king that the Jews revered, just the successful king, David, gets to the stand and testifies in verses 6 through 8, okay? First there was Abraham, now there's the highly respected David, and David is going to speak, verse 6, just as David describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Now David wasn't right with God because of his works. Do you guys know David's story? You know, homeboy was an an adulterer, you know, murdered his girlfriend's husband. That don't get you to heaven, okay? Practiced deceit, faked having rabies, didn't trust in the Lord, things like that, okay? Those are just parts of his failure. And yet he's able to shout out the blessedness, the beauty of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, okay? Verse 7 Blessed is the man whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. This is quoted from Psalm 32, and it was written after David confessed his sin with Bathsheba. He was forgiven of his sin. It had been a whole year that David had been miserable, hiding in his sin. You know, he writes Psalms like, man, I was sweating all night long. My bed, you know, tossed and turned, just had no rest because he was seeking to hide his sin rather than confessing it. But joy in Psalm 32 comes out of a heart the moment he confessed his sin and forgiven of it. 
And there's a couple things we can note here. First of all, how blessed is the man whose lawless deeds are forgiven. The word blessed can be translated, oh, how very happy. You think we got it right? Are we showing that happiness of being forgiven? What does that look like? It's like, oh, you know. My mom is just one of the, the most dramatic, happy people when you see her. Just like, you know, just, you know. Also, my wife, she was an OSU cheerleader, so she's got it down as well. Standing on hands and things like that. But how very happy. Is that you? Are you, oh, how very happy? Two, th- two reasons to be Oh, how very happy. First of all, God forgives sin. Forgive means to send it away. Like the psalmist says in Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he's removed our sin from us. What are your lawless deeds? What are the things that you're ashamed of? What are the ways you've wronged people, the ways you've worshiped other gods and sought pleasure Sought worshiping the created thing rather than the creator. Man, the list is long. My list is long. But I am so happy because my sins have been sent away. The moment we place our faith in Jesus, he completely forgives us of our sins past, present, and future. You've been justified. The judges hit the gavel to the stand. That's justification, whose sins have been covered. Now, the second reason to be oh so very happy is that not only are you forgiven and your sins sent away, but God does not impute sin. That means that God is not keeping a record of wrong against you. Let me say that again. God is not keeping a record of wrong against you if you're in Christ. He sees Jesus when he looks at you. Do you understand that? Do I understand that? He doesn't impute sin into our account when, when, you know, the Lord, you know, the Father says, hey, bring me the file of Rory Rogers, you know, and you hear that click, 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 and then they tapity, tapity, tap, and they bring it up. Man, I'm either going to have like this gigantic file that, hold on, it's going to take six hours to download all the gigabytes of the sin that Rory's done, or instantaneously it's going to come up and say, justified. How about you? Have you had faith in Christ like Abraham and like David? Like David who appealed to the tender mercies of God and was forgiven. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. This first evidence that's been brought with the witnesses of Abraham and David show us that we're not justified by works, okay? Now, justification by works is destructive. I'm going to show you three ways. First of all, if you try to be justified by your works, number one, you will hate yourself. Okay? You're going to hate yourself. It's another form of pride, actually. It's kind of a false humility. And if you're functioning on your works, you'll become self-absorbed, constantly trying to conquer things and beat things, and you will become consumed. You're going to hate yourself because you're always failing. And then you're going to buck up on New Year's Eve and you're going to say, I'm going to do it this year. I'm really going to do it. And you're not going to do it. And you're going to hate yourself. 
You're just going to beat yourself up. You're going to go buy every self-help book you can find. Secondly, you're going to hate God. If you're trying to be justified by your works, you, you have this sense of entitlement. God, you owe me. Do you know all these nice and good deeds that I've been doing? You owe me. Well, we've already established God is a debtor to no man. And when you go to him in his face and say, where's my stuff? Where's my heaven? And where's my approval? And I did this and that. Your mouth will be stopped before God. And you will be condemned. Thirdly, if you're trying to be justified by your own works, you'll, be failed, you'll fail simply because there is no salvation in works. There's no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Now, it can either be your blood and eternal death, where you'll justly pay the consequence for your sin, or it can be Jesus's blood, which brings eternal life. And so we have the sad news that justification by works destroys you, but we have the, oh, how very happy, the good news about justification by faith, this glorious doctrine. Four things. First of all, your sin is no longer reckoned to you. The penalty has been poured out upon Jesus. Secondly, the new covenant is not based on your ability to perform, but on the performance that Jesus has already acted out in perfection it's attributed to your account now. Thirdly, all of the love and value and worth and strength that you need, no longer you try to do that yourself, but it comes from God alone. There's no created thing that can take it from you. And because of that, you're affirmed, not in yourself, but you're affirmed by Jesus. And you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Finally thing, final thing, we have nothing to boast about but one thing, and that is Christ and him crucified. We do have something to boast about, but it's Jesus. As Jeremiah says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the strong man boast in his strength. But if anyone's going to boast, let him boast in this, that he knows me and he understands me because I am the Lord exercising loving kindness and judgment and righteousness in the earth. We boast now, not in ourselves, but we have this banner like an army that rallies around this flag and it makes us charge into death as we say, our flag and our colors, they stand. We now have this flag, this banner. And Solomon says that this banner over me, it's his love. The thing that we boast in, the thing that we're joyful about, the thing that will follow to death, it's not us. It's him. It's his love. We have Abraham called back to the stand. Verses 9 through 12, exhibit B is placed on the stand. And it's not works now, but what about circumcision? How about that? Can we boast in that? Can we be justified by our circumcision? Hey, does the blessedness, does the happiness that David talks about, verse 9, come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? And I know how you guys are feeling right now. If you're like me, Circumcision just gets you stoked on a Sunday morning. You're just like, woo, preach it, preacher. Gets us all moving in our seats a little bit anyways. But let's roll up our sleeves. Let's get a little elbow grease into the, the text here, okay? Let's, let's like it by faith, okay? 
Does this blessedness come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? Tell me more. For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. This is simple, you guys. Was Abraham being circumcised what made him right before God? No, and here's why. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It wasn't until Genesis chapter 17, two chapters later, that circumcision was even invented. It was even given, okay? Abraham no thought, had no thought about, you know what would be a good idea? Getting a really sharp flint stone. Is anyone with me here? You know, it wasn't in his mind. It was 14 years after Genesis 15, verse 6, that God said, here is a sign of my covenant. Again, buddy, you messed up with Ishmael. 13 years have gone by. Now you've got this 13-year-old kid here. Circumcision needs to take place to, as a sign of my covenant that I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do, and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So was Abraham justified by circumcision? No. Circumcision didn't even exist at the time. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they're uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. The whole God's redemptive plan throughout history to save the whole world, not just the Jews, was evident as the gospel was preached to Abraham, as circumcision wasn't even a thought yet in Abraham's mind. Verse 12, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but those who walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Galatians says at two different times that in Christ Jesus, circumcision nor uncircumcision avails nothing but faith working through love or a new creation. Exhibit C and we'll close. It's not works it's not circumcision and now here's the third example of evidence can the law justify abraham was it by the law that abraham is right before god verse 13 the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to abraham or to his seed through the law but through the righteousness of faith okay so it wasn't through the law as galatians 3 the whole chapter is like a mirror of romans 4 but it basically says that Abraham was declared righteous 430 years before the law was even given. Okay? So was Abraham justified by being a good Jew boy and being circumcised and, and having the law and the law of Moses and keeping every little bit of it? Or was he justified by faith? Well, when God said he was just, when God said he was righteous, Circumcision didn't come for 14 more years, so we know it wasn't circumcision. And even more, 430 years later, the law came. Abraham had been just before the Lord for almost 500 years at that point. So how about you? Do you want to stand before God and pull out the good deeds list that you've been keeping in your pocket and be like, got something for you, you can pay me back at your earliest convenience, God. You know, like with Abraham, how, wait a second, no. Man, the father of our faith, led by example, that we too could follow in his footsteps of believing in the promises of God. Are we justified by the law? No. Verse 14 says, if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise 
is made of no effect. The whole promise of righteousness through faith would be worthless if only those that had the law were heirs. Galatians 2.21, Jesus says, I don't set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness came through the law, then Jesus died in vain. If we could do it, then God wouldn't have had to give up the privileges of deity, become a man in the flesh, live in this world, be murdered by his own creation, and be pinned to a tree if I could do it myself. I can't, you can't, that's why Jesus had to come and die. Verse 15 says, because the law brings about wrath, for where there's no law, there is no transgression. Or as the New Living Translation puts it, the law always brings punishment to those who try to obey it. The only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break. Whenever there's a law, there's that wrath against us, okay? Um, you know, in 1981 and 82, and then later in 1999, uh, the Treasury Department brought out this beautiful dollar coin called the Susan B. Anthony coin, okay? Anybody remember that? Happens to be the most unpopular coin that has ever been minted in U.S. history, you couldn't give it away. Well, you maybe could have given it, but nobody wanted it. Give me a regular George Washington, please, you know? And so they're like, what are we going to do with all of these dollars worth of Susan B. Anthony coins? One bank had so many of them, they had a little idea. They said, we're going to put a sign up on our bank that says limit two per customer. All of a sudden, people are flocking in that door. I only get two. I want them now. And then they would leave. They dress up in a disguise, come back for more. It's just like when we see a no fishing sign, what do we got to do? We got to go fishing, okay? I'm the same way, man. When I was a high school pastor, one of my kids, Brett, had a Bible study at a high school, and I went to hear it. It was awesome, and was there with a friend, and school was, or the lunch was over, the Bible study was over, we're heading back to our car. Right then, a fire alarm goes off, okay? The whole school floods out of the building. And my buddy Josh and I were like, well, let's just get in our car and leave. I mean, we're not a part of the system, you know, so let's get in our car. Let's take off. We start getting in our car and we get ambushed by a teacher. And the teacher's like, you boys get on the lawn right now with the rest of everybody. And we're like, I don't go to this school, you know. <laughs> and so we're like, okay, let's just do what they want, you know. And we went and we got on the grass and, you know, as we're talking, we kind of stepped off the grass and, and onto the pavement and you get back on the grass, <laughs> you know. And then the law provoked us to wrath, okay? And so we start jumping off. You know, we're in front of all of our youth group kids, so we're just being great examples. And jump off the grass and hop back on and get off and get on, you know? And I happened to be teaching through Romans chapter 4 at that time, and I was able to use it as an illustration to them. The law, it provokes us to wrath, and it, wrath is upon us because we can't keep it it's the standard there that we're not able to keep. It's a tutor, Galatians says, that just shows us we're sinners. Everyone there was able to say, Rory, you're such a sinner. You can't keep the righteousness of the teacher, you know. And that's every single one of us. Verse 16, therefore it's of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. So it's not based on works or circumcision or the law, but it's according to grace. Verse 17, as it's written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of him who he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. 
And that leads us into next week's study, how we see that he wasn't justified by works, but he was justified by resurrection power that's in Jesus. And we'll look at that in depth next week, but the worship team can come on up. And I just want to look real quick, and if you, know, if you want to browse it in Genesis 15, we'll just paraphrase it right now. But when God made this covenant with Abraham at the time, you know, now we have contracts. Back then, you had a sacrifice that was made to show that we're serious about keeping our covenants. And so they would often take an animal and they would split the animal from head to tail down the middle, put one half of the animal on one side, one on the other, and have a path in between the split animal. And so Abraham that night in Genesis chapter 15 got the animal and split it in two and laid it out. He also got some birds and some other things and some offerings and laid them out. And as he was waiting for God to appear so that they could walk through the middle as in this covenant, basically saying that, you know, if I break my part of the covenant, then let this bloody, split apart, gory mess be brought upon me. And as Abraham was waiting, he fell asleep and God appeared and God passed through this sacrifice by himself because he's, you know, I know you, Abraham, you're not going to be able to keep anything. This covenant, it's on me. This covenant about your seed coming and all the nations of the world being blessed. It's not on you, Abraham. It's on me. Fast forward, you know, two and a half thousand years later or something. I'm probably getting my years mixed up, but you have Jesus in the upper room at the last supper and he lifts up the cup and he lifts up the bread and he says, guys, I'm the one passing as the sacrifice once again. Here's the sign of the covenant this time. Here, as you drink it, it's my blood. Remember me. Remember my blood. It's not literally my blood. Remember the blood that I shed. This is the sign of the new covenant. And here's the bread. Remember my body that was broken. Again, it's not on you. It's not your works. I'm going to pass through. It's all on me. And there on the cross, his blood was spilt, his body was bruised and broken so that we wouldn't work, but that we would have faith and have every one of our sins forgiven. And blessed, oh, how happy is the man and woman who has their sins forgiven, who has their iniquities covered. Is that you today? Is that you or are you boasting on your works? And I know there are people here, you're boasting on your works. There's something, something there. You are relying on yourself, your heritage, some service that you've done. You know what? Condemnation's upon you. You lay aside your self-rightness. And you let Jesus impute and account and reckon his righteousness onto you. Happens through faith. Happens through resting in him. I got nothing to give. I, I have no merit here. I'm just responding to your free gift of grace. And so as you come up to the table, you can come as we sing and worship. You grab the elements of communion and you thank Jesus that he passed through wrath for you. You thank him that it was his blood that was shed. It was his body that was broken. That you can be oh so very happy 
and have your sins forgiven. And as we go to worship right now, let's just, let's respond in this moment. Is there anybody here right now? You can just raise your hand up and respond to this free gift of happiness that your sins are forgiven. You can be forgiven of all that wickedness and rebellion and darkness in your life. You've been hard and bitter and your attitude towards God has just stunk. And you've fallen short of his glory. Maybe you're here today and you've been the quintessential church kid your whole life, but you're still going to hell because there's been no covering for your sin. Right now where you're at, if you want the righteousness of God, will you just respond right now by lifting up your hand? The Lord sees you. Just let your hand being up, just be like Phineas casting the spear through those immoral people. Just faith is leading me to lift my hand to God and to say, God, I want your righteousness upon me. I want your forgiveness. I want relationship restored between us. I want to boast in knowing God. I want to boast that the cross was for me. I want to wear my cross necklace with boasting that it was done for me that my sins could be forgiven. Is there anybody else here today? Maybe you're a person, you think you surprise everybody by lifting your hand. That's good. Lift your hand. I don't want to see some good churchgoer in hell. I want to see someone that's willing to humble themselves before God and receive grace. That's a beautiful thing. There's a party in heaven when someone does that. Anybody else? You want to be justified. The Lord sees you. It's awesome. Just as you respond in faith, just hear that gavel slam down in heaven. Justified. No more file. Nothing imputed into your account any longer. Rejoice. You'd be happy. You'd be happy. We're happy with you. Anybody else? Lord sees you too. Beautiful thing. Just responding to his beautiful gift. Oh, how very happy are you right now. Anybody else? You want the work of the cross to be attributed to your account. Right now, don't wait another minute. Don't wait another day. Today is the day of salvation. And man, if there's a message that we can get so far out of the book of Romans, man, don't rest in yourself. If your mind goes for one moment to some performance of any kind. Surrender right now to grace. Let the record be blotted out. As I pray right now for you that lifted your hands, just Maybe you don't have the strength to lift your hand. That's okay. 
It's not by the work of lifting your hand that you're saved. But maybe as I pray, you would just want to lift your hand. Somebody else, more people, maybe the, the longest church goer in the place, maybe the most moral looking person here, you would surrender. Maybe you're a, involved in ministry at this church. And you've just been relying on that ministry. Don't fall into that. Rest in Jesus. Maybe you would just respond. As I just pray for those that, that are responding today, Lord Jesus, and you just in your heart, just repeat after me. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. Today you've showed me that. And Lord, it's not by my works that I'm innocent. It's not by my ritual of being baptized or having taken communion a thousand times. Or Lord, it's not by rules that I've made for myself to keep that I'm innocent before you. And I've thought that it was. But Lord, it's by your gift of your son. It's by his body being brutally murdered on the cross, his blood being shed, that I'm healed of my sin, that I'm healed of my shame, that I'm made right with you and that I'm justified. Justify me now, Lord. I appeal to your tender mercies. I appeal to your grace. And like a child, I exercise faith towards you. Pour out your spirit upon me right now, Lord. Give me the strength to live a life worthy of such good news. Change my life, God. Cleanse me. Purge me from my old sin. And Lord, you know it's deep. I want to be born again right now, Lord. Soften my heart. And Lord, may I be the greatest boaster of you and of your cross, waving the banner of love to this world. Thank you for your forgiveness, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.